It's been said that film has the ability to create an image of the natural world on the screen, and thus, in the audience's mind. In the world of film, members of the audience perceive what they see on screen as realistic, even if what they're seeing is not actually real. Many films today coordinate with academics to create a believable fake reality within their narrative, offering to viewers a realistic and natural version of the world within a fictional world system. The role and influence of academic consultants has been debated as the impact of historical films in the lens of educating a populace is in question. My name is Caitlin Phillips, and I'll be your host for this episode of The Oxford Comment. On this episode, we examine the significant role and responsibilities of academic consultants in movies, particularly historical and science fiction films. The use of consultants on set has steadily increased since the early 20th century, and we examine why this trend has become a popular practice and how it impacts the audience, the success of the project, and its cultural impact on society. The concept of this episode began with our team discussing what we look for when we indulge in today's television series and films. With the changing role of media, we began a dialogue questioning if there will be a greater need for historical advisors on sets for these upcoming television shows and movies. Something that I think about a lot when I am consuming content of any, any kind is the people who helped produce it and the people who helped research it and put it together because it turns into this thing where representation really matters and if you have a certain group of people telling a story for a different group of people that haven't been through something or that really can't relate to it you can study something but it's not the same as really identifying with it so something that I I really take into account when I see movies is who was the director of this who or did they have a historical person on the set to help make sure that the stories of certain people are being told accurately? Um, which I think a lot of consumers are doing these days. I think consumer culture as a whole is changing and we're starting to care more about what we're giving our money to and what was being put into making that thing, which then directly goes into the whole backlash culture that we're dealing with now and how it comes across as people being sensitive and people are really just looking to make sure that they're being represented the right way. And I feel like that also was because we have the tools to do that now. Right, exactly. Right? Like we're back we're in the day, there was more room for errors to be made and we wouldn't really notice them being made as people. Yeah. And then the people who were making these errors really weren't being fact-checked or they didn't have the resources to kind of yeah. I mean, make sure things are accurate. We're now... There's no excuse. We have everything we need to do the research, so it almost seems lazy and directly harmful if you aren't really putting that effort into making sure that you're telling the right stories. Yeah, yeah. And so I definitely agree about representation. If you don't have the proper representation, it lacks a form of authenticity. So, and also, especially for historical films and historical pieces, it keeps it from having a one-sided view of history. If you're only having a certain demographic in a writing room, you're only going to hear one side of the story as opposed to looking at it holistically, um, which could be argued that that could be irresponsible or unethical. I think especially for films that deal with historical matter, so if you look at uh, Lincoln, you expect as a viewer to have a certain degree of authenticity. So when I'm seeing that as a viewer, I'm expecting like, oh, this is what really happened. This is how these people really were and how they behaved. Um, and that could form my opinion of them as people of their actions and if that's not exactly the truth or if it was just twisted for cinematic 
drama or flair, then it could be skewing someone's perception of them as a historical figure. It's like um, in The Favorite this year, Queen Anne, she's depicted as completely incompetent and an idiot and crazy. And some of that might be true, but then also that movie, which it was my favorite movie of the year. I think it's fantastic. <laughs> but it also lacks the context that she was never supposed to rule. Like she was never supposed to be in the line. So she was never given the education that she needed in order to rule. So it could be argued that she's perceived in the movie as completely crazy and incompetent, but there's a reason for that. And I've heard other arguments and other people say that um, there are so few female characters or few female leaders in history that to just throw her out there is just incompetent is almost again irresponsible yeah and it's it's one thing to uh for a lot of i mean we're talking about characters or or people who mm -hmm. are deceased right so there is Definitely. no chance for oh this is what everybody Definitely. got wrong mm -hmm. i fear that a lot of times people are looking at lincoln or li looking at you know queen anne and all that mm -hmm. and thinking this is it. This is the Definitely. only opinion that I need to have mm -hmm. now. This is how I can explain how Lincoln, you know, who he was mm -hmm. and what he was like from this one interaction with this media. And a lot of that has been happening with um, Green Book, which also came out yeah. this year. Yeah. Where both of the lead male characters, their family members, have very different accounts because both of them have died, I think it was in 2013. So both of them are dead. Now their family, one of them is saying, this is completely inaccurate. And the other right. family is saying, no, this pretty much holds up. But it's kind of hard because we can't tell the truth. As an audience, we aren't able to discern what's actually true and what yeah. actually happened. I think we talked about the idea of based on a true story mm -hmm. or inspired by a true story or you know any of those sort of workarounds. Mm -hmm. um, I think a lot of producers you know, will, will kind of use as like, well, we don't have to be completely accurate and we can have a few allowances because we put out there inspired by. And so Definitely we aren't beholden to, mm -hmm. right, to being correct. Yeah. And I definitely think as an audience, what we see on screen, we perceive as an authority of fact. Right. And again, with this, with historical films, like that could be uh, not dangerous, but it could be uh, skewing someone's perceptions. Yeah, so just this idea of who makes the movies, who um, who's in the director's seat, who is even producing it, or making the choices in, say, music. When I was in high school, I wanted to watch Roots, and I distinctly remember in certain scenes, the music that they chose was very cheerful, as the slaves were working, the, the music was like kind of upbeat colonial music. And I thought to myself, this is grossly skewed. There's no way that this could be how it was. I mean, even if that music is authentic, if it's true colonial music, does that accurately portray the atmosphere of, um, of that time period. And I, it just, I shut off the movie. I didn't finish the series. We tell these narratives for a reason. We want to believe that this is how it was. Uh, we wanted to believe that slavery wasn't as bad, so we add in cheerful music. 
Um, speaking personally, I definitely think I'm just very sensitive to the idea of authenticity and how it relates to my film or TV show viewing experience. Like a lot of the best picture winners recently, and probably just if you look at them over a long time, have been based on true stories, 12 Years a Slave, Argo, Spotlight. And I remember when I saw, after I saw Argo, that um, one of the first things that I did was I looked up what was, how much it was true, especially relating to the um, escape scene at the end. And I found out that a lot of it had been fabricated for cinematic purposes and Canada's role specifically was left out of it. And I know that I felt after that, that it was really hard to think about the film in the same way that I had. And that at that point, all I was doing was just fixating on the inaccuracies. And I think that when we're consuming something, there's an amount of trust that we put in the writers and the directors and the producers and everyone involved and it's just very difficult to be in that situation where you feel like you've been cheated out of the real truth and maybe you know story purposes are sometimes of different needs than historical purposes but I think that it can be just really evident when someone is has the best intentions at heart and when someone is just doing it more for just having a cinematic big escape scene rather than just having something that's really at the heart of what's being true to what happened. I feel like I'm the same way kind of as you. Um, I'll find myself watching things now and before, it, if it's a movie or a TV show, I'll be on my phone, how did this end or did this really happen or like I have a really hard time finishing and focusing on a story now without fact checking. Like I already walk into a production with no trust that they're going to get it right. I think um, you guys are picking up on a really interesting point though of like good media versus truthful media. You pulled up Argo, um, you know, which is like a fascinating movie and watching it is thrilling and exciting. Most of it is bunk. So <laughs> when you're kind of coming out of, right? So like when you're coming out of a theater or when you're done watching a TV show or whatever, it's, it's almost as if you have to ask yourself two questions at this point. Because we have access to information, we can Google before we get in there. Or it can be like, what is this person literally talking about right now? Right. As compared to, is that going to make this a good movie, a good product? Are consumers getting too smart? Like, are consumers, uh, because we have access, you know, are, are we going to start to see the nominees for Best Picture and things like that? be the ones that are you know coming out more truthful. I think that consumers are getting smarter, especially because of the internet. There's so much more, um, there's so many more public forums for discussion of film criticism and cultural criticism. So I think that the way you see film institutions like the Academy being pushed to um, recognize more you know, people of color on stage or the way the Me Too movement really kind of tackling the power structure in Hollywood right now. I think that there's a lot of change in the way consumers are thinking about the media that they want to be produced. So they're saying we want more diverse stories to be told. We want 
um, different perspectives on the screen. And then we want to reward those movies when they do really well. So I can understand for some stories why they might have changed something or done something like uh, Black Klansmen. They have been very transparent about like we changed XYZ for this reason. And it doesn't change my perception of the character or what happened. They're like um, just small changes that kind of added to the viewing of the movie. So I can understand that as an audience member. I think the word you just used is perfect, transparency. And I agree that the Vice movie coming out will be, um, we'll either go one one of two ways. And I think um, it's all, even if you have a historian on site for that, no matter what, a historian is also a person and they have an inherent bias. So whatever their personal beliefs are, whatever their personal perception of that time is, that will definitely bleed into how Dick Cheney is portrayed on film. And how he's portrayed on film will be, um, or see very differently by people. (laughs) So it's an interesting point, uh, you know, the idea of our film sets using only one historian? Are they bringing a plethora of historians? How many ideas, how many thoughts, how many viewpoints are being taken into consideration to get to truth? So even if a film set is attempting to have some kind of accuracy, just because they act- they go out and get someone who says, okay, I'm an expert in this time period and have written you know this book, and so therefore you know, there are my credentials, is that still (laughs) doing enough or are we just then doomed to repeat one viewpoint over and over Mm -hmm. and over again and I'm sure we can look at a few movies and feel like we've looked at historically speaking one viewpoint Mm -hmm. over and over again and I think that also raises a question that in history is there a way to concretely know the truth right is there a way to concretely know what Abraham Lincoln was like and was he funny did he have a twinkle in his eye like do we know that or is that just what has been presented to us on screen and the fact that you said having different historians on set for one project right there are obviously there are different opinions within a discipline so how do they decide which version of history gets told and is it the version that is the best on screen or is it the version that is closest to the truth We decided to bring in an expert to help us weigh in on the significance of academic and historical advisors on film and television sets. We called Diana Walsh Basulka, who is the author of American Cosmic, UFOs, Religion, Technology, and asked her about her experience and success as an academic consultant in the industry. I am a professor at the University of North Carolina in Wilmington. And I have a PhD in religious studies. I'm chair of the Department of Philosophy and Religion there. My specialty is in Catholic studies, and I have a subspecialty in screen cultures and their impact on religion. And I've written about pop culture and its influence on religion. And my recent book is American Cosmic, published by Oxford. And um, in that book, what I do is I use the topic of UFOs as an example of how screen cultures have Um, influenced and even created uh, new forms of religiosities. Great, and and all of those come together um, as part of your work as sort of being a consultant uh, on some films. Can you talk a little bit about what your planning and consulting process is like? Sure. Um, So the planning and process of consulting, I didn't seek out this role. Um, I was actually, uh, the town I live in, uh, it's called Wilmington, um, but it's also called Hollywood East. And we had a pretty thriving 
film industry here. So I would get phone calls from the local studio asking for, you know, little consulting work here and there on films that had to do with Catholic culture. So my planning and consulting process is not systematic in any way. So I'm usually called uh, to consult on a screenplay for either a movie or a television show. And it's most likely about Catholic culture, which is, you know, the Catholic Church is almost, well, heck, it's a brand. And um, a lot of shows feature, you know, the Catholic culture, exorcists, things like that. And uh, what happens is I go out and I talk to the screenwriters usually, and it's usually the screenwriters who need help doing either translations from Latin or just help with the culture of Catholicism. Um, And so I consulted for The Conjuring, which was filmed here in Wilmington, and their call was to help them translate Latin for the actors. But once I got on the set, I realized that they were dealing with characters who were actually traditionalist Catholics, and I had just happened to be writing about traditionalist Catholics at the time. So what I did was I helped them understand uh, the religious culture and orientation of uh, traditionalist Catholics, and I could see that they actually did need some help. Uh, they were unfamiliar with that type of Catholicism, so I helped them understand that they needed things like sacramentals, like rosaries and crucifixes and holy water, in order to flesh out the characters of Ed and Lorraine Warren. And um, so it's that type of thing. A lot of the um, films that I consulted on actually never made it to the screen. So a lot of films don't actually make it to the screen. So The Conjuring was just one that actually did. And then uh, it's, I believe it's still the second highest grossing film about the supernatural in history, uh, it actually displaced The Exorcist. So that one did particularly well. So you mentioned a few things that you helped with, sort of making sure that they had rosaries or they had the right sacraments on hand. Um, Are there other ways you would be able to make your mark? So in set direction, in costume design, uh, you know, how deep does it go when they are looking for that authenticity do they reach out to you or you kind of made it seem like maybe you had to tap them on the shoulder a bit and say hey i know that you're trying to you know get to this outcome uh, maybe i can help out a little bit you know how deep does it go yeah sure so a lot of times when um people from hollywood you know they want to do a historical piece or something like that they don't know what you know the type of help that they need so uh, I definitely offered my help and said, well, you know, this is what, if, if you're dealing with Ed and Lorraine Warren and they're doing Latin masses, this is what you need. And they didn't know that. So they were really happy to accept the help. Um, I never actually helped them with set design or costuming. Well, I helped them with set design in the sense that I said, this is what a traditionalist you know, would use. These are the kinds of sacramentals they would use. But this was set in the 70s. And whoever did the set design did a remarkable job for that that movie. It was great. But I had nothing to do with that. But I've been involved in helping screenwriters basically understand the worldview, I guess, uh, that the main characters are coming from. Like, say, take the main character in The Exorcist, and I wasn't a consultant on The Exorcist. Father Karras, he's a priest, and he's having, uh, you know, he's really educated, and he's having this crisis of faith. So I can actually 
uh, help them get into the mindset of some of the characters if the characters are coming from a certain Catholic perspective. And I think that that helps them if the screenwriters are not Catholic, which in this case they weren't. So in that sense, yes, I, I was involved. But I actually haven't been involved in set design or costuming. I know that screenwriters from and producers who go back into the 18th century definitely need the help of cultural historians for, for that. But I'd, I've not done that at all. Do you know if there is a larger network of historians that would come onto sets? Do you have any contact with others who are maybe working, um, you know, in, in other regions or in other uh, disciplines that are doing any of that kind of consulting and that kind of stuff? Oh, absolutely. Um, so there, there are people who specialize in helping create an aura of historical accuracy, and I, you know, they they are all around the country. And they do do this, and it's almost like a subfield within history. And it's also a subfield within some of uh, religious studies, which is what my field is. For example, I have a friend who is an expert on poltergeist activity and has done a history of uh, the poltergeist phenomena. And there are a lot of scary movies about poltergeists. And I know that he's been asked to, you know, participate. I have another friend um, from Rice University, uh, Jeff Kripal, and he's in, been, his work has been involved with movies as well, like X-Men and things like that. He's, he's kind of an expert on the history of Marvel Comics and things like that. You know, uh, definitely Hollywood more and more is reaching out to, or any, even independent um, filmmakers are reaching out to academics to help them. They want to present something that's meaty, right? This presents some opportunities, but it also presents some problems as well. One is that, you know, how accurate do we want to present this? Is it, um, would we want to sacrifice historical accuracy for getting, say, a good scene or something like that? And as a person who has written history and reads primary historical documents, I can, you know, pretty much assure you that history doesn't need embellishment. Um, when you're looking at historical documents, a lot of times I just have to put them aside because they're actually too dramatic. There are no trigger warnings on these historical documents. And it's, uh, you know, it's, history is terrifying and dramatic enough. Um, I remember when Gladiator came out, right? And I have a lot of friends who work in first century, second century Roman history. And they said, oh, yeah, that's, that, that wasn't dramatic enough. <laughs> and I thought, wow, I'm sure glad I don't live in that time period. So history doesn't really need embellishments. I think that um, if people who are interested in filming history actually talk to historians of that era, they're going to get a lot to, to represent. They don't really actually need to embellish a scene. With your work now on you know, having consulted on films, do you feel yourself pulled out of films sometimes when you go to the movies? Do you uh, have a little bit too much expertise now, maybe, and, and you can kind of see you know, the, the strings behind the, the movie? Oh, definitely. And unfortunately, that happens to my students, too, because I tell them what's going on. They go, oh, gosh, I can never watch a movie the same again. But, you know, this is really interesting. So there's a new genre in production, in film production and television production, but it's called specialist factual programming. And almost every production company now has its own department called specialist factual. And this is a genre of television and film production that blends computer generated imagery with real historical footage. So what it does is it's basically creating a confabulated product 
some of the things that they've done is they've created, um, you know, that prehistoric shark, uh, Megalodon. What they've done is they've taken Megalodon and they've recreated Megalodon so that Megalodon looks absolutely real. And they target these productions. They put them in the genre of, you know, documentaries. And they target them to children on, like, the History Channel. So children now are watching this. And I have young children, about 10, 11, and I ask their friends, so what do you think of this shark? And they say, oh, it's, it's real. It really exists. And I say, you know, that's a prehistoric shark. It's extinct. And, and so they don't believe it. And the reason they don't believe it is because they've seen it and it looks so real because of these specialist factual productions. Um, the name even specialist factual is interesting because um, it sounds so familiar, it comes seemingly, or it's a strange coincidence, but Philip K. Dick, he wrote um, a short story that was made into the movie Total Recall. And the company that produced the false memories was called Extra Factual. So here we have a genre that seems like a science fiction genre, but it's actually a real genre. It's new, and it's gaining in the currency, the products they sell are to History Channel and, you know, the BBC Channel and things like that, so that people are looking at these things and they see, you know, historical footage interspersed with things that aren't real, like, you know, um, Martians or things like that. And what, and cognitive science of film is really interesting because what that says is that says that even though we don't, we know we're going to a film that's not real, we're still reacting to it. There's there are parts of our brain that are reacting to these productions as if they are real. So on some level, they're actually shifting cultural memory. And so that's what I find to be somewhat disturbing about this new way of um, utilizing new and innovative technologies, but conflating them with historical footage and things like that to create these products. So I think that's, uh, that's something that we all have to think about, the ethics of that. So um, it is the case that if you take a historical production, you know, if you have a paper that tells you what happened during, say, uh, a battle, and then you see the battle and the producer changes it and it's not as historically accurate as the document, when you see the battle, that's what you're going to remember. You're going to remember the historically inaccurate visual representation instead of the dry textual document. So that's something that that historians who do this and you know people in my position uh, we have to think about when we're involved in these productions um, yeah and in an article you once said uh, working on a film bridges the gap between pop culture and academics along with maybe giving an incorrect idea do you think that having some more historical representation um, on screen is perhaps also getting people to do a little bit more research and, and find out uh, some more information about things that perhaps they hadn't really looked into in the past? Yeah, I mean, I think so. Let's just say I hope that's the case. When I said that, what I was basically suggesting is that I was already working on, when I was asked to be a part of The Conjuring, this was in 2013, 2012, um, I had already written about the ways in which people are fooled, really, by film techniques that, you know, come across as documentary style, like the Blair Witch Project was a great example of this. What I did when I put myself in this position of being a consultant was that I was using it as a laboratory in a sense 
I wanted to actually see, because, you know, The Conjuring is quote unquote based on true events. And actually a lot of the editing for The Conjuring, if you look at it, especially the credits, they intersperse the real actors with the actual people so that you come away thinking, wow, this is such a real thing, you know, but did it happen that way? Well, I, you know, I can't say. I don't think so, probably. So I guess what I'm trying to say is a lot of people, I was actually asked to be on this uh, national Catholic radio station, and they wanted to know, you know, they were basically believing what was going on. They were believing that this was real. And so I was saying, well, we have to understand that this is entertainment, you know, and, you know, the, if you think about it, one of the first most brilliant ways of confabulating fact and fiction was Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Uh, what she did was she basically wrote the novel like a series of letters, realistic letters. And so that gave the appearance of something that was this real thing, but it was a work of fiction. These are tactics that sell, as strategies that sell, but I also think that the audience needs to be a little more savvy about what they're consuming, um, because millions of people are believing and not necessarily doing what you suggest, which is going and, you know, doing some fact-finding and that type of thing. So I think that we're in a place in our culture right now where truth and, and reality are somewhat gaining a little bit of traction, right? Like we do want some some truth in our media. Do you think that there will be an, a need for more um, historical advisors from movies to TV, you know, that it, it'll become more and more important not just to read one book on the subject and be like, okay, we can get close, but really bring on people with some knowledge, um, you know, and, and some expertise. Do you think that that will, um, you know, we'll see an uptick or a surge in that because of the current climate? Absolutely. That's why I think that this is such a, a great show that you have. And I think that it's such an urgent need right now. You know, I mean, there was a pushback to fast food at some point, right? We were like, we shouldn't consume this much fast food. Well, I think we need to start thinking about that in terms of screen culture. I think we need to start thinking, what are we consuming? Is this really so good for us? And the news. So, you know, what type of news are we consuming? Is this entertainment or is this actual quote unquote news? And, you know, genres like the documentary or a genre like the History Channel. We, we used to go to the History Channel and think we were going to get accurate history. Well, actually, that's a lot of it is entertainment. I know my students are very, very savvy to this and they want to know. They want to have the strategies to identify sources that are, you know, more credible than other sources. Absolutely, this is the case. And this is one of the most, the top five important issues for this new year and as we move forward into this new century, I think that it's actually urgent. As technology and especially our screen cultures, you know, we open up our phone, we open up our computers, and they're tailored to our taste. So they're basically reinforcing because of bots and advertising bots and that type of thing. They're really tailored to what our worldview, they, re, they reinforce our worldview. So if we could just get out and talk to one another, you know, outside the screen, then we can, you know, have our views challenged and then go back into the screen and see how, how we are being really formed through the, the screen cultures of which we can't escape. We're not going to escape these. So we, we need to learn how to deal with them. I think we're going to get to a point where 
it will be impossible not to have some sort of fact-checking or academic historian on set at all times. Um, You can't lie in the Twitter age. You can't lie in the Twitter age and try to get away with it and try to make money off of it. If you're like monetizing bad ideas or fake ideas, it's just, it's not going to work. And you you know, that term fake news, it's a deeper, deeper meaning. And if you're doing it for entertainment purposes, it almost feels like a slap to the viewer's face. It's like, I'm paying you to kind of escape that reality that we are actually in. I think we'll get to a point where that really dissolves, or at least I hope so. But I think there will come a point where we're going to become the academic supervisors on set. The viewer is going to be the one that, you know, has that Wikipedia article screenshotted in a tweet and it goes viral. And you're that director that sees it like, we really should have invested in that um, academic assistance. It's an initiative that's really been pushed throughout the past, you know, 50-some years um, with the rise of filmmaking and such, but you're not going to be able to cheat the system any longer. I agree that looking to the future, there's no way it'll be regressive. And in this day and age, even if someone doesn't have an educated academic on set, you can bet that that educated academic has a Twitter account. (laughs) <laughs> yep. Yeah, there'll be Neil deGrasse Tyseeing it all yeah. over the place. So it's like, not hey, e- Cameron, the sky, not correct <laughs> for that time. Right. <laughs> so it's not even yeah. my prerogative to do a lot of research. I can just look to well-educated people that should have been in the process, and they'll be able to point out any discrepancies. We wanted to thank our featured guest, Diana Walsh-Pasulka, author of American Cosmic, UFOs, Religion, Technology, for joining us on this episode of The Oxford Comment. As always, we would also like to thank our cast and crew of The Oxford Comment for their continued assistance on each episode, as well as their participation in our conversation regarding the role of academic advisors. Be sure to follow Oxford Academic on Facebook and Twitter to stay up to date on upcoming podcast episodes. Also, don't forget to subscribe to The Oxford Comment on Spotify, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and Google Play. I'm Caitlin Phillips. Thank you for listening.